Father, it's a joy to gather together to see um, old friends and new faces, but it is your face that we seek. Uh, we want to draw near to you with that promise that you promised to draw near to us. And so speak to each one of us, we pray, through your word. May your spirit do his work in our hearts. Strengthen us to trust Christ wholeheartedly this day, we pray. In his precious name, amen. Well, Art Carey is a writer who wrote a great piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer about his experience of um, hitting the wall while running the Boston Marathon. Let me read a bit of it to you. By now, the rigors of having run nearly 20 miles are beginning to tell. My stride has shortened, my legs tight, my breathing is shallow and fast, my joints are becoming raw and worn, my neck aches from all the jolts that have ricocheted up my spine. Half-dollar blisters sting the soles of my feet. I'm beginning to feel queasy and light-headed. I want to stop running. I have hit the wall. Now the real battle begins. Heartbreak Hill, the last, the longest, and the steepest, a half-mile struggle against gravity designed to finish off the faint and faltering. Hundreds of people stand along the hill watching, urging the walkers to jog, the joggers to run, the runners to speed on to Boston. Slowly, ever so slowly, the grade begins to level out. The last four miles are seemingly endless. Some runners, their eyes rooted catatonically to the ground, trudge along in their bare feet, holding in their hands the shoes that have blistered and bloodied their feet. Others team up to help each other, limping along, arm in arm, like maimed and battle-weary soldiers returning from the front. Finally, the distinct profile of the Prudential Building looms ahead on the horizon. I begin to step up my pace. I can see the yellow stripe 50 yards ahead. I run faster, pumping my arms, pushing off my toes, defying clutching leg cramps to mount a glorious last gasp kick. 40 yards, 30 yards, 20 yards, cheers and clapping, 10 yards, finish line. An explosion of euphoria. I'm clocked in at two hours, 50 minutes and 49 seconds. My place, 1,176. I find the figures difficult to believe. But if they are accurate, then I've run the best marathon of my life. While times and places are important and breaking a personal record is thrilling, the real joy of the Boston Marathon is just finishing. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And you'll find this on page 1,211. Page 1,211. Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 17 this morning. A few weeks ago, we began to consider this chapter. And we saw how the writer likens the Christian life to a marathon race. Some of the Christians he is writing to have hit the wall. Wearied by the opposition they experienced since converting from Judaism to follow Jesus as their Messiah, 
they still found themselves facing all the normal challenges and hardships of, of living life in a broken, suffering world. Some had stopped even coming to church. They didn't appear to even be running the race any longer. And this whole letter is written to encourage and urge them not to give up. Look back at chapter 12, verse 1 with me. And look at that final sentence there. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And now our Bible verses today in verses 12 to 17 continue to teach us on how we can keep going in the Christian race when we feel that we've hit the wall. So let's just take the time to read them from verse 12. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. This is God's inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word. Now, there are basically two sections uh, in our text today. We get specific advice of what to do in verses 12 to 14, and then what to avoid in verse 15 to 17 if we want to finish the race well. So we'll look at stuff that, that we are to do and stuff we are to avoid. So what are we to do if we want to finish well? Well, I don't know whether you've ever run until you've got to the point where you've basically got no form left in your running. It, it's kind of more like staggering forward than running. Have you ever run that far? Maybe you've never got to that point. Uh, as I said a few weeks ago, I get to that point just running for the bus. I lose all form towards the end. <laughs> you know, your arms are just flapping by your sides. Your knees have turned to jelly, and, and, and now you struggle to straighten your legs uh, with each stride. You're not keeping in a straight line even. You're kind of wandering from side to side. Well, maybe you've never got that far, but you've seen it on telly, I'm sure. How do you keep running when running gets tough? That's the question. Now, what coaches would say is this. At that point, you've got to dig deeper. You've got to dig deeper. You've actually got to choose to pull yourself together and tap into deeper reserves of energy and not lose heart but push on when you hit the wall. And that's what the writer says to the church in verse 12. Dig deeper and keep running. Look at verse 12 again. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. 
It's as if the writer is a coach and he's calling out, come on, straighten up. Get your hands up. Get your feet up. Keep going. Dig deeper. Now, spiritually, it is possible to get weary and to become kind of increasingly downcast and jaundiced. Everything can seem bleak. And we can, in that state, become quick to complain and grow critical of others. And the problem is not really other people. It's just that we're unhappy in our souls. And that unhappiness just spreads itself out liberally everywhere. We're, we're spiritually sagging. We've stopped running and we're staggering about and we're barging into everyone around us. And there are times when we need someone to love us enough to say to us, pull yourself together. A church minister in South Africa told me once how he had a time of protracted difficulty in his church there and he phoned up another minister, Dick Lucas. Uh, if you remember, he spoke at my induction. I'm looking forward to seeing him next week. And he phoned up Dick and he was started pouring out his troubles. After a few minutes of this, Dick stopped him and said, brother, I'm not going to listen to any more of this moaning. Goodbye. And he put the phone down. Doesn't seem very loving, but actually it had the desired effect. He realized he was just moaning. And he had to repent of that. And he resolved at that point to move forward. And sometimes we need to love each other enough to, to not merely make nice, compassionate noises, but actually say to each other, come on, mate, pull yourself together. Verse 12 is, is a quote from Isaiah chapter 35. And it describes people walking on the highway of holiness. And Isaiah stirs the weary with this reminder uh, that is quoted here. But here's, here it is from Isaiah. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come to save you. And we need to remind ourselves, you know what? God is achieving these salvation plans. Jesus Christ is returning. We don't need to lose heart. We don't need to give way to fear. Let's dig deep and keep going forward. And the second way to finish well is linked to it. And it's this, that we need to run together. Verse 13. Uh, in 2016, there was this incredible moment in the final of the World Triathlon Series. And the two British runners, their two brothers, uh, there's Johnny and Alistair. And Johnny Brownlee, at this point, was leading on the final straight. It was about 400 meters to go. Do you remember this? 400 meters to go to the final, uh, to, the, to the finishing line. He was winning. And he just suddenly hit the wall. His fatigue overwhelmed him. And he just did all that floppy, staggering thing. And he wasn't making, he virtually stopped. Now, Alistair was running behind him, and Alistair could have just powered past him. He'd, he'd, he'd nursed his energies better. He could have powered past him to, to win. But what did Alistair do? He, he ran up to him, grabbed his arm, put it over his shoulder, straightened him up, and they staggered towards the line together. Now, the guy in third place couldn't believe his luck. He ran past them both and won. But it was a beautiful moment. Sometimes relationships in a family are more important 
that come in first. And the, the writer quotes from Proverbs chapter 4 here, and he uses it to call them to, to run this race together, to help each other to keep running the race. Verse 13, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. And the idea is that together we can help each other run straight towards the line by our support of each other. We can be helped not to be staggering around and, and, and not to be tripped up by sin. Uh, people who are struggling and limping, and if they keep st- staggering around the way they are, they're going to fall down and they're going to disable themselves. Well, we don't want that to happen, and so we gather around and we run together towards the line. Now, perhaps you've, you've come to church today and you've had just a stellar week. Your eyes have been fixed on Jesus. You are running a beautiful race this week but I can guarantee it there are people in this room right now and they've had a terrible week and they've been stumbling all over the place in fact they almost didn't come out today but somehow they managed to get out now what I want to encourage each one of us is is, you know if you've had a really strong week stick around for tea and coffee look out for someone find out get alongside them listen to them pray with them Put their arm over your shoulder and help them to run this next week ahead. Perhaps you felt like you've been limping this week and you're chatting to someone and they're limping. Good. Two limpers can help each other limp to the line. Just like in the Boston Marathon, teaming up. You know, it doesn't matter how elegantly you're running as long as you're heading towards the the finish line. See, the joy of completing is heightened when we finish the race together. Do you know, there's no special prize for who gets first. But there's great joy when we get there together. And that's why there's such a strong encouragement in this letter about this mutual ministry of encouragement. Hebrews chapter 3, but encourage one another daily, it says, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And in chapter 10, Uh, It says this, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. This is one of the reasons we gather together. We gather, yes, to meet with God in his presence, but we gather to encourage and build each other up. Thirdly, run after peace and holiness. Verse 14, look at verse 14 again. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now it's clear as we we read the Bible that both peace and holiness are already ours as a gift of God that we receive when we put our faith in Jesus. By trusting what Jesus has done for us uh, on the cross in his death upon the cross that we are cleansed from our sins we are redeemed, and we have been made holy. And so now we're welcomed into the presence of a, of a holy God. We have peace with God, and we've been made holy. It's our new status, it's our new privilege, and it happens as soon as we put our trust in Christ. But now he writes to these guys and says, look, work it out. Live out the reality of this in your lives together. 
you know, we've got peace with God, then we need to work out that peace with our Christian family. But notice, it's not just with our Christian family, it's with all the other people we meet in our lives too. We are to live in peace with who? Everyone. Everyone. Remember, in the original context, the original hearers or readers of this letter, they've been experiencing hostility for trusting Christ. Some of them have been thrown into prison. Some have had their, uh, their stuff confiscated. And notice that he writes them and he says, look, he doesn't say to them, look, get revenge, get your own back, be aggressive. No, he says, seek peace. And they need to do the same within the church family. When the pressure is on, it's all too easy to take it out on the people you love to take out your unhappiness on others. And uh, when we disagree with some decisions or proposed direction or, or, or whatever, the, the devil loves to stir the pot of dissension in a church, setting up brother against brother, sister against sister, passing on unhappy thoughts to each other and gossip. The devil loves that sort of thing. But the only way we're gonna complete this race is actually if we run it together in the same direction. And for that, we need to make every effort to live in peace. That, that phrase, every effort, is actually a surprisingly aggressive word. It can even be used for uh, persecuting others. Aggressively go after peace. Isn't that beautiful? I want you to be aggressive about being peaceful. Not passive-aggressive, right? Just, but, but really go after peace. Go hard after it. Do everything you can. And really, this has been the, the, this is a, the teaching of the New Testament. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Or Romans 14. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Uh, Romans 12. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's helpful, isn't it? Because not everybody wants to be peaceful with you. But from your side of things, make sure you do everything from your perspective that peace is possible. And it's the same in the way that the Holy Spirit wants to produce holiness in our lives. Practical holiness. You see, we're saved not simply saved from sin, but we're saved for heaven. And what's the future going to be like? Well, the future will, will be close eternal communion with a holy God. And so actually, we're saved for holiness. What, what does a holy life look like? Well, you could look at the Ten Commandments. They not only reveal our sin, but they show us the way of holiness. See, the future where we're heading is a future where God alone is worshipped. Uh, where where there, is, um, there are no rival gods, there are no rival idols that we chase after. Where God's name is revered and hallowed where it's never misused, uh, where we find joy and our rest in him, where we honor others, where there's no murder, there's no adultery, there's no stealing, there's no lying, there's no jealousy and coveting. The way of holiness is described in the fruit of the Spirit, where, where there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. 
The Holy Spirit is at work to make us more like Jesus in these practical areas of holiness. And we are not only to aggressively pursue peace, but we are to aggressively go after holiness. It's part of what we're running towards, running to work out in our lives. These things do not come about by coasting, but by active energy and pursuit. Holiness is, is not the bonus extra for the enthusiastic. The Christian race is ran on the highway of holiness, as it says in Isaiah 35. And the amazing promise for those running this Christian race, pursuing peace and holiness, is that you will complete the race and you will see the Lord. I don't know who you'd love to meet. I heard that the highlight for Meghan Markle's mum was meeting the Queen and having tea with the Queen. People say it's pretty exciting. But what would it be like to meet the Lord? To see the full glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What will that be like? One of the evidences that someone is a genuine Christian is that they care about holiness. When they sin, it saddens them. And there's a desire to fight against their sin. There's a desire to make progress in practical holiness. And the challenge for those who have no desire to pursue peace or holiness is that without holiness, we will not complete the race and we will not see the Lord. And so my friends, practically today, how are you running the race? How are you doing in this pursuit of peace and holiness? Just one example. You know, if you're holding a grudge against someone and you never miss an opportunity to allow them to feel your cold wrath, never smiling at them but grimacing at them whenever you can, avoiding them at all costs, you never miss an opportunity to say a bad word about them, if that's going on, can I just tell you? God wants to say to you, that behavior does not fit with the way of holiness. God wants you to make progress. And we're to make every effort to pursue peace and holiness. It's time to reconcile. It's time to forgive. It's time to move forwards as far as it is possible from your side of things. Now a bit more quickly. How are we going to, what do we need to avoid to finish well? The second half of these verses. And in a sense, the, this is the counterside of, of what we've already considered. First thing, verse 15, is we need to avoid gracelessness. I don't know whether that's a real word, but it seems a bit long, doesn't it? But avoid gracelessness. Verse 15, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. How can we make every effort to pursue peace and holiness? What am I to do when I'm more aware of sin in my life than holiness? Make sure that I'm not living a graceless life. Do you know what? God's grace is bigger than our sin. There's a wonderful uh, sentence in James, he gives more grace. And do you know what? He's more eager to give us grace than we are to ask him 
for that sustaining and enabling and strengthening grace to live the Christian life. And a graceless life is essentially a prayerless life. Back in Hebrews chapter 4, we were reminded in this way, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Everything has been done now for the Christian to approach the throne of grace and get more grace. He gives more grace. You need to come to him. But a prayerless life is a graceless life. A graceless life is one that stops coming to church and and hearing where the word of God is both preached and lived out. Uh, Turn over to chapter 13. We're going to come to this in a, in a few weeks. Look at verse 7. Uh, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. So what's the job of a Christian leader? To speak the word of God to you. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So leaders are to model what obedience to the word of God looks like. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Do you know out there, there's all sorts of weird teaching. It's not going to help you. Uh, there's, a, there's been a lot of stuff in the papers about a guy called Jesse Duplantis who's trusting God for a $54 million jet. I can tell you right now, he's not preaching the gospel. Don't give him a cent. He's not teaching you the truth. There's lots of nonsense out there that won't do you any sort of good. Don't be carried away by all sorts of strange teaching. But you know what? Our hearts will be strengthened by God's grace as we listen to those who will rightly speak the word of God to us and model that in their lives. And a graceless life is when we, have, we miss out on the opportunities of coming and meeting with God's people to hear the word of God taught, to, to see uh, godliness worked out in the life of a congregation, to know what it looks like. And again, these verses stress the importance of running this race together. If you turn back to chapter 12 and uh, Uh, verse 15 that that word see to it in the original is the word from which we get the words bishop or overseer uh, watching over each other and the idea is that each one of us as Christians are to to be like bishops overseers watching over each other's lives having a care for where people are spiritually at caring for each other's souls to make sure that people are not falling short of the grace of God. This is a a beautiful section about the the value of corporate church life as it functions healthily and properly. The role of pastoral care is not the exclusive privilege of pastors and the staff team of the church. And do you know what? Practically it is not possible. If If pastoral care is just about me visiting you and I see one person a day, I'm not going to see you like, I'm going to see you once every couple of years. It's not practical. It's not even biblical. We're called to do this careful pastoral care and watchfulness over each other's lives. All of us, if you know Christ, we're all called to be engaged in this. 
And so uh, as a member, if you notice that someone's not here this morning or you're aware that someone's struggling in their faith, uh, don't grumble about the pastoral team and say, oh, the church isn't very good like this. No, you, if you're a Christian and you're a member here, you're the church. Don't Stop grumbling against yourself. Do something about it. You can be engaged in this pastoral care, this watchfulness that helps make sure people don't fall short of the grace of God, that they don't live a graceless life. Second thing we need to avoid uh, is to avoid apostasy. Verse 15, see to it that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now this is a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. And there's a strong warning to the people of God as they are about to enter the land for the first time about the danger of people turning from worshiping and trusting God turning from that to unbelief and turning to worship false gods and turning after idols describes this great danger of a bitter root growing up causing trouble, defiling many. And and one of the things we're doing as we're watching over each other's lives is to help each other when we see signs that people are basically giving way to unbelief. And starting to love and worship things other than God and, and going astray in their, in their hearts and lives. Uh, sadly, this can happen in Christian churches where people keep going along to church. Uh, they can even become elders and ministers. But actually, deep down, they don't really believe the Bible. Uh, they've found ways that there's you know, they, they pick and choose what they like to believe and they cross their fingers about the bits they don't like. And if, we're, if they're being really truthful, they're not really trusting Jesus as the unique son of God. This is happening in Scotland right now. Um, if it goes on long enough, you basically can get denominations to decide that, that the Bible's basically wrong and it's culturally bound and and we can choose to do something completely different today and do the exact opposite of what the Bible, when the Bible calls something as evil and sinful, well, we'll, we'll do it because it's okay because we understand we're, we're wiser than the Bible. We're wiser than what God has to say. The Scottish Episcopal Church produced a document uh, in support of its um, uh, encouragement to do same-sex marriage where it suggested in one of their documents that Jesus was culturally bound into first century thinking and so actually Jesus didn't really know better and we know better than Jesus. That's how bad it can get. It can get so bad that in the cathedral in Glasgow a a, a Muslim was encouraged to lead in prayers and readings that basically said in the cathedral Jesus was just a prophet. And so actually you know what this begins right here in each one of our hearts. See, if I get knocked down by a bus this week, it's the members who are going to pick the next senior pastor. And I hope you will interrogate this man. Interview him, we call it, don't we? But make sure that he really believes that the Bible is the final, sufficient, authoritative word of God. That he really believes that Jesus is both truly human, but truly God. That he submits his life under the word of God. And if you as members don't really believe that that's true and don't really 
check that that's going to happen, you're in danger of getting a minister who doesn't really believe that. And for a while, it'll look just the same. But actually, you're drifting away from the truth. And it'll cause a defilement in the church. So we need to carefully watch over each other. Not in a sort of unhealthy way, but in a loving way. Help strengthen each other to grow in our faith, to hold on to the faith revealed in the Bible with confidence. Not to allow this sort of unbelief to grow and thrive in our local church. Thirdly, third thing that we've got to make sure no one does is we need to avoid godless appetites. Verses 16 to 17. Verse 16, see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. You could do a whole uh, Sunday sermon on this one section. But in essence, we need to watch over each other that we don't become like Esau. We read about it earlier in the service. Uh, Esau, the firstborn son, uh, the redhead, not that that really affected it, but he received the birthright of the promises of God as the firstborn son, the promises that God had given to Abraham and and his father Isaac. Uh, These promises are basically promises that lead to the gospel, that lead to the coming of Jesus Christ. So really, these, these in these inheritance rights and gospel promises that are about our salvation in Jesus, ultimately. But when it came to it, for Esau, his physical appetites for fun, for sex, for food, turned out to be more important than the promises of God. And when he came in from the fun of hunting in the field, he traded his whole inheritance rights for a bowl of lentil stew. Now, a good lentil stew is tasty. But really? You know, he was eventually full of remorse. I'm not sure he was ever repentant, but he was full of remorse, realizing in the end that he'd missed out. The life of simply living for godless physical pleasure had taken him to a place where no change was possible. Now we're surrounded by an Esau culture. Uh, sexually immoral, the word here is, has, is the root word pornos. We're in a pornographic culture. It's all about having a beautiful body, uh, chasing sex, maximizing physical pleasure. Basically, go at it. Satisfy all your appetites as far as you can. And uh, seeing Harvey Weinstein being charged for various sexual offenses, we're reminded of the absolute carnage and the brokenness of a culture that pursues sexual freedom, but actually has inherited enslaved addictions, sexual brokenness, pain, depression, and loss. That's the reality. So much brokenness in our culture. And you know, my Christian friends, what do you have as a Christian? You have the word of God. You have great 
and precious promises from God that if you trust Christ, in the end, it's going to be utterly glorious. And each one of us in this Esau culture are being asked, what do you value this week? What will you value? Will you value the promises of God? Will you keep hanging on to Jesus, keep running the Christian race? Will you stay on the highway of holiness? Or will you basically think below this, I'm going to live for lentil stew? I'm just going to go for something that temporarily satisfies me. But you know, the lentil stew, within 24 hours, it's gone. It's empty. The church that he's writing to were in danger of doing this very thing that Esau was doing. It was getting too hard. And they were tempted to back away from following Jesus. And so the writer of the Hebrews says to them, and he says to us, beware of these godless appetites. We're in a culture that, 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 that acts as if God doesn't matter. He's not a big deal. Who are you going to listen to? What God has to say in his word or this ephemeral, ever-changing, dysfunctional culture? See, God wants us to finish the race well. And uh, that's how we're going to see the Lord. And so what do we need to do? Well, we need to dig deeper and keep running. We need to run together. We need to run after peace and holiness. We need to avoid gracelessness. We need to avoid apostasy and godless appetites. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. His grace is all we need. His amazing grace. Grace has brought us safe thus far and grace will lead us home. Look to his grace today. Can I invite the band up? We're going to close with that very hymn. If you need prayer for any particular issues there's going to be a prayer team down here please be looking out for each other in the coffee time please stick around if you've got chairs under the balcony stack them up move them to the side but look out for conversations where you can help maybe the person who's limping put their arm around your shoulder and say come on let's run together encourage them today